Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 130 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Maggie Smith all about writing complex female relationships. But first to last week's question, which was, what are your favourite traits? So we didn't have anybody comment on traits, but again, I think this is because there's really not enough time between uh, the episode posting and when I record. Um, However, uh, Tom Fowler writes on Instagram said, I love Save the Cat Writes a Novel. The beat sheet is part of my outlining process. Um, and S.W. Miller said, one of my favourite episodes yet. So thank you. Whoops. And I'm just trying to see if we've got the... Okay, so um, our, uh, the question that we had was, um, have you read Save the Cat or Save the Cat Writes a Novel? And it was 72% of you said, obviously, and 28% of you said no. So yeah, a good portion of writers have read the book. The question of the week this week is, recommend a craft book. Uh, I'm looking for some new craft books, so yeah, recommend me a craft book. The book recommendation is Black Dog and Other Gothic Tales by I.C. Sedgwick, and the uh, blurb goes like this. A clerk encounters Black Shuck while taking a shortcut. Young men vie to join a shadowy order by hunting an ancient being through the streets of Venice. A young man accepts a bet to spend the night in a haunted tube station. Within these pages encounter body-swapping mummies, Egyptian princess ghosts, lonely creatures hiding among us, spectral doubles, and even death himself. Let these stories be your guide to the weird, the fantastic, and the downright gothic. I have actually read one of Icy's other books. I actually have the second one as well, but um, she also wrote The Necromancer's Apprentice in the Magic and Mayhem series, and it was fucking brilliant. It's uh, more like a novella. I think it's only about 100 odd uh, pages, but it's so good. So I recommend uh, you check that one out as well, and I'll leave links in the show notes. Okay, so in personal news then, I have finished accepting the editor's edits on tray and I've also formatted it and I have sent off for the paperback covers so that I can get a uh, print proof, which is very exciting. I am, I don't think I've ever been... Uh, maybe maybe apart from the first book, I don't think I've ever been as excited to receive a print copy uh, of a book. This book is 488 fucking pages. I was like, what? Um, yeah, it's a big book. Well, it's big for me that obviously there are authors who write, you know, 600 page books or whatever. But uh, yeah, so this is, I think, the longest book I've ever written. Um So yeah, I'm super excited to kind of get it and feel its meaty weight. Um <laughs> That's so gross. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm really excited and uh, hopefully the cover will come back soon. What else? I am working on a new course, uh, a a craft course that is all about how to successfully write the enemies to lovers trope. Um, And hopefully I will get that finished in the next week or two. I would like it done by the end of the month, but uh, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully by the end of the month and I will tell you more about that when it is done. And then After that, I am kind of, in the background, I am having some 
difficulties deciding which series to work on next. So as I draft or finish drafting, I should say, The Scent of Death and finish drafting the new nonfiction book that I'm working on, I need to be intentionally inputting and intentionally kind of brainstorming for the next series that I write. And I have two series that I can't decide between. One is... um, Murdering Magicians, which I've already done a bit of brainstorming for, and I've kind of been inputting for that for a while. And then a more contemporary series that is more recent, uh, but I'm quite excited about. So I'm finding it, yeah, I don't know, like, how do you guys decide what series to write next? Like, it's really, it's really hard, because obviously once you decide, you're kind of locked in for two or three books before you can really start another series. You know, I could have two series going at the same time but really I need to make sure I've got three books so that I can do a bit of marketing and promo stuff so yeah I'm just having resistance to making that decision um what else have I been working on uh let me think I think that is it. Mostly this week, I have been trying to smash out all of the like tasks that I fell behind on so that I clear out my uh, time to work on this course next week. Um, yeah, and then after that, it will be London Book Fair. So if any of you uh, are going to London Book Fair, London Book Fair, <laughs> oops. Uh, if any of you are going to London Book Fair, please do let me know. Drop me a DM. Uh, probably Instagram is best. So at Sasha Black Author. Let me know that you're going uh, because I will be around. I've got some. I've got some meetings and things, but I've also got some time blocks uh, where I can go and have coffees or or whatever. So yeah, please do let me know. The Rebel of the Week this week is Genevieve Scholl. Genevieve says, I've been thinking and thinking about what I could submit as my rebellion story, wondering if I've ever rebelled in my 34 years. I thought I was a goody two-shoes who never did anything interesting in my life, but then I realised my rebellion was staring me in the face, my writing. Not only am I self-published, which people constantly tell me not to do, but I'm also rebelling because I don't follow so-called rules when I write. Yes, I follow grammar rules and for the most part, the beats of a story. But what I do to rebel is I don't follow the 50,000 word rule. A book is a book no matter the length to me because you wrote it. I don't write just what's popular. I create characters I want instead of my readers. Basically, I live by the statement, if you write it, they will come. So that's my rebellion. It's small and uh, nothing shocking or badass, but I play by my own rules, my freedom to do so, and I don't give in to peer pressure and I'm proud of it. Hey, like, any rebellion, big, small, or something in between is completely valid. And I love it. I love the fact that you are writing what brings you joy, what makes you happy. Like, is there any greater rebellion than than saying fuck you to, to society or the people that try to shove you in those boxes and make you write the things that, you know, don't necessarily bring you joy? So yeah, I love this rebellion. If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. We are always on the line of like only having a handful of stories. Um, So yeah, please, please, please do send in your story. They really can be any kind of rebellion. And even if you sent me one before, you can send me one again. Uh, You can email your Rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, a big thank you to Jenny Lynn, who upped her pledge this week and joined the Rebel Readers. Now, the Rebel Readers have, um, we have picked our next session. So we are going to be working on the Chosen One trope. We're going to be watching a movie together um, at some point uh, in the next couple of months. And then we are also reading two books together 
two chosen ones, uh, two chosen one books. Uh, the first one is She Who Became the Sun, and the second one, uh, so that one is by Shelley Parker Chan, and then the other book is Unlondon or Unlondon by China. I'm going to butcher this. Mivel, Mivel, Mivel. <laughs> God. How embarrassing. Anyway. Oh, uh, yes. So that is what we're doing. And if you would like to be a patron and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as lots of bonus goodies, then you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This week's episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life. So I'm going to read a quick uh, note from Kobo before we get on with the episode. Kobo Writing Life is Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. And with that in mind, let's talk about how KWL authors can reach library readers. Right now, digital books are reaching more people than ever, and libraries are becoming an integral part of that. In 2021, 121 digital library systems powered by Overdrive surpassed 506 million checkouts. This means a lot of happy library readers, and library readers are some of the most engaged and passionate book lovers out there. You can easily add your book to Overdrive's library system through Kobo Writing Life. All you need to do is go to the Rights and Distribution section of your book, click Yes to Overdrive and enter a library price. Your book will then be available to librarians to purchase for multi-loan use, but also for a one-time checkout option and you'll earn 50% on every library sale. If you're not too sure what price you should set for your book, we recommend roughly the same price as a mass market paperback. Your book could be loaned out several times, which is why we encourage higher pricing than your normal ebook. And don't forget to tell your readers that they can now pick up your book in libraries. If you're interested in taking part in library promotions, email our, writing, uh, email our team at writinglife@kobo.com and we'll add you to our mailing list. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Another quick reminder that uh, the audio is slightly echoey this week. This is one of the last episodes, I think, <laughs> that I recorded at uh, my mum's house when my internet was out. So uh, yeah, apologies for the slightly tinny uh, feel to the audio. Hopefully that should be gone uh, next week. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Maggie Smith. In a career that's included work as a journalist, a psychologist, and the founder of a national art consulting company, Maggie Smith now adds novelist to her resume with the publication of her debut, Truth and Other Lies. In addition to her writing, Maggie hosts the weekly podcast, Hear Us Raw, where she interviews debut authors about their novel and their path to publication, and blogs monthly for Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. A board member of the Chicago Writers Association, she, she's managing editor of their Write City magazine and coordinator of Book Nook, which highlights Chicago area independent bookstores. 
Hello and welcome. Thank you very much. I enjoy being here and talking to you and meeting you finally. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, so I, I have to say, I was really impressed with your novel because um, I, it's not really my genre at all. And I'm always a little bit reluctant to read outside my genre. Now, I do read outside my genre because one, I have to for the podcast. Um, well, I suppose I don't have to, but I like to because I think it <laughs> creates a better episode. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, sort of I'll read outside for like research and stuff, but I, I haven't really... I mean, I'm guessing it's women's fiction. That's kind of how it's I... It's women's fiction. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. I really, really well, loved it. So that's why I was now so she's impressed. acting surprised. I don't know why she's <laughs> acting surprised. Because it's not my genre. So I, I was I was expecting... I don't know what I was expecting, but I, I fucking loved it. I thought it was brilliant. It was compulsively readable. I wanted to know what happened. And yeah, I don't know. I suppose I'm surprised because it's so outside of what I normally read. And it was yeah. just delightful. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, and I suppose before we dive in, I wondered if you could tell everyone a little bit about your journey to publication and sort of how you got to where you are today. Well, um, I started writing only about four years ago. I mean, I, I was in journalism school when I first went to college. And so I did writing in high school and in college. And then I actually segued from journalism into psychology. So I was writing, but it was like, you know, academic papers and research and, and things like and that. And what kind of psychology? Because my background is uh, counseling, psychology, ah, okay. being a therapist. Yeah. Um, and so then I got married and we started the art business, which we, you know, in retrospect, had no busy business. No business doing. We weren't artists and we weren't business people and we'd never even worked at a store. Uh, but my husband and I said, well, let's just do it. This is what 26 year olds do. They just <laughs> throw their hands up and say, how bad can it be? Uh, we'll do something else if this doesn't work out. And um, so I had not really done writing for the time that I was running the business, uh, running the art business. And I really wanted to have a, a creative outlet. So I had gone to a couple of workshops and dabbled around with maybe I could write. I think that is mainly because I'm a terrible singer and I tried painting and people I showed it to said, I, I don't know what that is. So I decided that wasn't for me. <laughs> I'm a pretty good photographer. You know, I, I have an eye for uh, structure and, and, and how to form good um, pictures. Uh, but anyway, I, I decided I was going to try my hand at writing. And I went to a workshop uh, and the prompt was, I could never write a book about and I put mothers and daughters. No because, way. Yeah. I, oh I don't have any children of my own. I've had stepchildren through my marriages, but I don't have uh, biological children. And my mother and I, I, I tell this, I, I think from the moment that my mother and I could talk to each other, we were fighting. Uh, we just didn't see eye to eye on things at all. Um, and she's deceased now. So I'm telling I'm telling the story about her and she has, she can't come back to me. Um, but it just seemed like we were always at loggerheads with each other. And so I didn't feel like I had a handle on the mother daughter relationship at all. A lot of my friends talked to their mother some every day. That was just so foreign to me that people would have that close of relationship. So um, then the prompt was, well, uh, spend the next 30 minutes writing about that 
topic you can never write about. And I kind of got the idea to do a girl in her 20s looking for who she was going to model her life after. And since her mother was not someone she wanted to model her life after, who is she going to? And so I had a mentor uh, that she looked up to that was in her profession and the mother and then the 25-year-old. And as a kind of trio that I was hoping to to see if I could come up with a novel or or something, a story to tell about these people. Well, you said and like a lot of a, a lot of novels. I mean, this turned out to be somewhat based on my life, even though it's certainly larger than life. Uh, the the characters became larger than life. The the mentor became a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. The mother became someone running for Congress. Um, so they were more high concept than certainly the people in my life were. But that was the the impetus for how I started out. And I wrote actually two other versions of this that those were not the characters. That was not the plot. I had those three roles in it, but the mother was mainly the um, protagonist in the first two. And in the second one, which I thought was going to be the novel, all three of them had a point of view. And she was, um, the mother found out she was adopted as an adult and then decided to go looking for her birth mother, who turned out to be the famous journalist. Oh, wow. Um, that is a shift. So that was very different. And yeah. um, But how I had worked the girl in was I had her get a job working for the for the birth mother. And there were quite a few, I, I went to some developmental editors to take a look at it and give me some advice. And they said, that's just too big a coincidence. People yeah. will not buy that. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out a way to do it any other way. So I just kind of threw the plot out and kept the roles of the three people and, and came up with a different thing to hang it on. And they also said, for a first novel, it might be good to just have one point of view. It's a little tricky to do three right off the bat. Um, so I decided that would be the young girl and she would bounce off the other two. And we would learn about them, not through having them as point of view characters, but through interactions with her. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. And this is sort of one of my questions later on about um, kind of that mindset and the generational gaps and I think what's so interesting is that even though we're in the point of view of the younger woman we like you really feel that it's about relationships and so yeah no I mean anyway okay I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into my questions um and the first one that I wanted to ask was about journalism so I don't think I've ever had a journalist on here actually maybe I've had one who used to be a music journalist but um never never I don't think I asked about music journalism so I wanted to know how has that impacted your writing like what did you take from the journalism what are the most like helpful lessons you took or um like yeah the biggest things that you learned from journalism that you that has sort of impacted you in terms of novel writing well, I think I learned how to write a fast first draft because journalism is is very much breaking news. I mean, unless you're writing a big expose that you know takes a year or something and lots of research, but in general, you're you're trained to kind of sit down at a, 
a computer and, and just type the story out. And so that is pretty good for getting a fast first draft, which I think is necessary when you're doing a novel uh, to just get the story out so you kind of know where you're going. In retrospect, I didn't do that. And that's why it took so long because, you know, I had the entire novel all written when somebody said, oh, that won't work. And I thought, oh, I wish I had known that a year ago and not spend all this time on it. Um, I think also getting the facts right by listening and asking is something that as a, a novelist I do to get deeper into what the characters are. Um, I, my, my journalist uh, protagonist, Megan, um, makes the point that she oftentimes tries and finds something in common with the person that she's questioning, even if it's just, oh, I love your boots. I have boots like that, you know, that you do have this rapport building that you're after and in trying to get someone to open up to you. And and the digging deeper, I think, uh, is also what you do in a novel. You write the, the kind of surface level, but then to get it to go deeper is really where the the juicy parts come. So I guess I would say those are all things that you learn as a journalist. Did you have to do any research for this book? Just about the part that had to do with the 20 year, uh, uh, the Bosnian war and the older story, the older backstories. I had to do that, some research just online about that. I have at various times in my life lived in Chicago. Uh, I lived there when I was at Northwestern in the journalism school. And then I had an apartment there that I lived in on the weekends and lived in Milwaukee uh, during the week for a couple of years. So I didn't have to research too much about Chicago. I did go down there and, and made sure that I had all the logistics right, but but that wasn't too tricky. Um, and uh, and the journalism, I, I felt like I, I knew that pretty well. Politics, not so much, but it's not really about politics. There is a political mm -hmm. campaign going on because the mother is running for Congress. Um, but I still but, thought it was really realistic. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, well, and it, it's taking place in the midterms in 2018. So that was kind of a watershed moment for American politics. And there were a lot of women running in that um, election from both sides. So I thought it was realistic. And Helen is not run for political office before. And in, Helen is the mother. And Megan, in fact, says, you know, you've never even held elective office in your life. And her mother comes back and says, nowadays, that's not necessarily a, an impediment to this, which is, you know, those of us in the United States, we kind of laugh at that and say, yeah, you know, we did elect a president that hadn't been elected of anything. Um, so there was just a lot going on with politics at that point. And even though I didn't want to make it the focus, I thought, I've been to enough rallies and, and uh, uh, seen, not behind the scenes, but I think I understand a little bit how it works. <laughs> so Okay. So I want to talk about the craft in your book. Um, and one of the things that you do is you portray um, these complex relationships between mother and daughter. And you sort of mentioned like the um, mentor and mentee as well. Um, uh, so I wondered what craft advice or techniques uh, would you or did you use to develop those relationships? And like, what advice would you give to another writer wanting to portray um, that mother-daughter relationship realistically? 
Well, the the technique that I learned from a teacher that has stood me in good stead is to write it and then write write something and then ask why. And I'll give you an example. I might say to myself, well, Megan and her mother do not get along as I'm crafting the characters. And then I would train myself to say, why? Why don't why don't they get along? And then it would be, well, Megan feels like Helen is overprotective of her. She's always trying to shield her from something bad happening. And then you ask why again. And you say, why is she doing that? Well, because she doesn't want her to get hurt. She's afraid somebody might attack her. Well, why would she feel like that? And so you just kind of keep peeling the layers back by that simple question. Or you can also use what if. Well, what if this had happened? What if that had happened? What if there was a... um person kidnapping young girls in the uh, suburb where they lived when Megan was a child, but she doesn't know about that. What if uh, Helen herself had been kidnapped when she was a child? So she might feel like that. So just looking to see what, what, what does the reader expect is going to happen next? And then don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, I have to and, say and, that. And that's really kind of something interesting to do in roundtables. If you're part of a roundtable group, you can read a, a, a passage and then you just ask the people in the table to go around. What do you think is going to happen next? And those are all the things that you can't have happen next because they're being expected. Mm. And so you're always kind of looking to not and, and obviously if you're a thriller or a mystery writer you're doing that but even in other kinds of books and i don't know what genre you write in but um it's applicable to pretty much any kind of genre is just don't do what the what the reader is expecting mm -hmm. or even set it up or put red herrings in to make uh you know people think it's going to be one thing and then yeah ha have have that twist for something else um you you as i've mentioned we have you have uh, a a couple of different types of relationships um in the book so you have mother daughter mentor mentee but you also have best friends in there as well right um the former two so mother daughter and mentor mentee are the two relationships that change over the course of the novel so i wondered what craft tips or tricks you have for showing that change in relationship like how did you depict it how did you how did you create that kind Kind of arc and change in their relationships? Well, I think when I first started out, I wanted it to happen pretty quickly. You know, it was like, well, I know we're going to eventually get here. And so I was changing it much more quickly than I think it ever happens in real life. And so to take it slow and, and piece out the information, don't, don't make it happen quickly and maybe have it look like it's going one step forward and then backtrack um, so that I'll just take uh, Helen and, and Megan as an example, the mother and daughter. They have some scenes in which they look like they're starting to understand each other a little bit more. And then there's, you know, a reversal of uh, usually Megan kind of saying, no, no, you're not. You're treating me like a child again. She doesn't tell her mother 
the address where she's moving to, for example, <laughs> very passive aggressive. Um, so I'm trying to do it not necessarily through dialogue, sometimes through dialogue, but also through actions where you go, oh, I, you know, the fact that she would not do that, um, would not tell her mother where she was moving. You don't initially realize it. And then the mother says, but wait, you didn't tell me where you're moving. <laughs> and she just pretends she doesn't hear her. So it's like that tells you something about both of them. Mm. Um without it being in dialogue necessarily. So I think you, and then sometimes you can have other characters talk about, uh, Jocelyn has a, there is a character that was Jocelyn's best friend, just like Becca and Megan are best friends when they were in college. And we see an encounter between Megan talking to that best friend to get some information about Jocelyn. And that woman is expressing the fact that that they lost that relationship, they lost that friendship, and that now she doesn't have that closeness with Jocelyn. She doesn't really know anything about the stuff she knows with her good friends. She's she's aware of whether her good friends are having health issues or whether the, how their parents are doing or how their children are, are facing challenges, but she doesn't know anything of that about Jocelyn because they've really, they're just surface friends now. Mm -hmm. And so you see that hopefully the contrast between that and the and the very, very close relationship that Becca and Megan have. In fact, that's almost the reason that Megan returns to Chicago when she loses her job is not to be close to her mother, but to get back in touch with her best friend. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, what was interesting was I didn't expect her to do for her friend, what she did, like with, in, and I'm obviously trying not to give too many spoilers, but in mm -hmm. regards to there was a work situation and she had to make a choice. And so I expected a different choice. Um, and I really liked that. She and that did tells she you did. something about her. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. It does tell you something about her. It also engaged me because it was unexpected. Um, so yeah. And it, that goes back to what you were saying earlier. I wanted to ask, do you, what I asked about your journalism, but now I'm curious, like, how do you think your career in psychology has impacted your writing? Like, do you think you've brought, like, especially the fact that you have written about relationships, right? So I'm just wondering, like, what have you brought from psychology into your books? Oh, I think that that it, it's it's funny that psychologists are oftentimes asked, well, I mean, are you always analyzing people? I remember when I was dating uh, before I got married and I was studying psychology it would be a often asked question. Are you analyzing me? And I used to say, not unless you're going to pay me. Uh, <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but I think it becomes so ingrained, just like maybe a doctor or a lawyer sees the world through their eyes. A psychologist sees the world through all the stuff that they've learned and it's almost innate. Um, so perhaps it's easier to know when you're writing true feelings and you're really, or you're getting into something that you say, that is how people actually react. Um, or you're also knowing one technique I was taught was figure out what a character is feeling in this situation. Don't write that. What else are they feeling? Mm. What else are they feeling? And you, 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 you throw away the first three things you think of and write the fourth and fifth one, because those are the deeper things. Those are the more subtle things. Those are the ones that aren't as obvious 
from the outside. And that's a kind of a little <sighs> trick. I love that so much. I um, Because we're never just feeling one thing. No, no, exactly. And I think you have landed on something that I have been stuck on. So I'm writing a book called The Scent of Death. And um, it's basically, it's, I write young adult and it's about a girl who gets punched on the nose by somebody dressed as death and then she can smell how people are going to die. Mm. Um, and it, I want to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, 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 the story starts, I think, because my beginnings tend to change, but this is the second beginning that I have written. And so that's usually See, right aren't word. you glad? <laughs> Don't you wish somebody had told you that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But here's the thing. Um, the opening scene is at a funeral and of a family member. And I just could not get the fucking scene right. And I like I have I have outlined it. I have thrown the outline away. I've tried to pants it. I have tried to brute force my way through the, the I, I just I can't get it right. And I think it's because I did not go deeper. Like I was like, what would they just be feeling? No, that's that isn't right. And this whole book is about the underlying feeling. It is not it is not about those surface feelings. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to start writing tomorrow. I have not felt this excited. She's cutting the interview off and going to writing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Everyone, we're done now. No, I'm joking. But thank you. Because, yeah, you, I feel like you've just lit a bit of a firework. So that is a fantastic technique. I am going to be, I'm going to intellect on that for quite some time over the next few days. So thank you. Well, and that's, again, back to what we were saying, because the surface things you're thinking of is what the reader is thinking of. Mm. So you're not coming in any coming up with anything that's going to interest them they're going well i was already there i knew yeah. that would happen yeah. but you know for example someone dies people are sad that's obviously and and then they're upset but sometimes they're thinking about themselves they may be selfish going well now aren't i going to get some money um aren't i going to inherit something or now it's going to be more difficult or now that boy I had my eye on, he doesn't have a girlfriend anymore now. I, so things that you don't necessarily tell anyone mm -hmm, <laughs> that mm -hmm. you're feeling. No, I love it. And also, like I was listening, I don't know if you've listened to um, Jennifer Barnes, Jennifer Lynn Barnes. She's, she did a Romance Writers of America um, lecture called Romance, uh, Writing for Your Id. And um, Wait, hang on. Where was I going with that? My mind has just gone completely blank. Oh, no, it was such a good point. No, it's completely gone. Oh, well, I'll have to come back to it when I remember. <laughs> oh, I'm so upset. That was such a good connecting point. Never mind. Um, <laughs> Never mind. Okay. You cover some sensitive topics in the book, like really sensitive topics. You cover things and sort of trigger warning for everybody listening. We're going to now talk about some sensitive things. Um and, and some of those things include abortion, pro-life, political views, plagiarism, um, and more. And I wanted to ask about writing those things. I think a lot of people get scared or afraid to cover topics that are either current news, that are politically charged, or may cause offense to people. So I wanted to know, how did you create the balance between realism of views um, and also coming at it with some sensitivity in order not to sort of, um, uh, what's the word, alienate everybody? 
Well, I read a book and we were talking about research before and, and I wish I could say what re- book it is. It's a nonfiction, but it was it was making the point or trying to distinguish. And this is an American, you know, based in America. Um, the two sides that were going on in the political and and that each of them have things that the other one, if you just say the catchwords, would agree with. Um, and I think at one point, Helen says, you know, I believe our, our party believes in in freedom. It believes in uh, the sanctity of life. It believes in, you know, the and, and nobody can kind of really argue with those things. Um, on some level, but how that manifests itself in political movements and legislatures and uh, laws, then we're getting into some things that are controversial and that people begin taking sides to. And I, I think there's a lot of talk in America about, oh, the way it used to be. We, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats used to at least talk to each other and reach across the aisle and pass things. And, and maybe that is true. Uh, we certainly don't seem to be there now. And it's affecting a lot of families as well. There's always, you know, oh, I hate Thanksgiving because somebody's coming and they feel differently than everybody else at the table. But I just felt like Shouldn't we be putting that in novels? Shouldn't we be putting that in the books we're reading? Because if we're just ignoring them and we're just writing to the one side, then how are we ever going to start talking to each other again? And I wanted to write a novel where, and and I think it probably is more around the mother character because she is pro-life and Megan is the protagonist. So she's very much... um, pro-choice again you know for gun control uh concerned about the climate change those kinds of what in our in our country we would call liberal um touch points and i wanted to have helen not be a caricature so that you don't have to come out of the book agreeing with her or changing your mind about anything you feel like, but you feel like you understand why she feels the way she does. And what's so and I think understanding is the first step. Well, and so this is this is what I find fascinating. I am definitely a Megan. I'm liberal. I believe like a woman should have the choice. Um, all of all of that kind of stuff. Um, but my favorite character was Helen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is fascinating to me because she is pro-life. She has different political views to me, but I just, I loved her arc. I loved the change in her. And you, like, you could definitely write a sequel about her. <laughs> and what happens That, next that is what, when people ask me about a sequel, I say, well, I'm not too interested in doing the Megan Jocelyn because I think it's kind of obvious what's going to happen. I'd be much more interested in writing about Helen. You should. I think she would have a fascinating story. Um, yeah. And so how what what writing techniques or tricks or literary devices did you use to kind of portray that um, almost juxtaposition in her? Oh, that's a good question. And I'm not sure it was so over time because initially not surprisingly, she was kind of being written as my mother, 
<laughs> you know, I tell people, well, well, that first encounter that's very early on in the book where the two of them are sniping at each other and, and, uh, I say, well, that wasn't hard to ride. I was right there when it was happening <laughs> with my mother. Um, but later on, uh, as I went and worked with an editor at my first, I, I had two publishers. I had a publisher that was going to publish this in March 2021 and went bankrupt. And so then I, but I did work with an editor for about eight months during that. And that was the character that she was always pressing me. I think you can go deeper. I think you haven't. I have. I don't think you're mining this. You could do better. Um, and not only with that, there was one point I remember where uh, Becca and Megan are in a hotel room, and I just kind of uh, glanced over. You know, they ate dinner and went to bed or something like that. And she said, "Well, this is you're missing an opportunity. I These two haven't scene. been together." you know, on a sleepover, in effect, since maybe college. So have them rem reminisce. This is an opportunity to work in backstory through dialogue. They're watching TV and they're kind of talking about the old Afghan they used to, in the wine they used to drink and things like that. And it was really just the difference between adding a paragraph, but it's about digging deeper so they seem more like real people. And maybe that's what you learn as you write more is how to do that, how important that is. Yeah, it's, I can't, this is so timely. I've literally been thinking about backstory this week and how it is so underplayed and underutilized. And quite often it, it is where those additional layers come, but it's such a dangerous tool to play with because you can so easily info dump or right. you can, um, yeah, you, yeah, you can info dump or ex, like do exposition as opposed to weaving it in seamlessly. But I really do think that backstory is quite often the key to a lot of depth. Um, but uh, when I say depth, I mean, um, what is the word? Like subtle depth, depth mm -hmm. that you give to the reader without the reader realizing that you that that's what you're doing. Um, yeah. So I love that. I love that. And we're talking a lot about Helen, but Jocelyn, the famous broadcaster, a lot of the backstory we get from her is not something that she's going to tell anyone. We well, get we it from that it best from friend. Her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. From that best friend telling. And that helps you understand. And again, maybe you don't agree with what she did. But it's not just arbitrary. You kind of get a sense of why she did it. Even you, even though you may think she made the wrong decision or she acted inappropriately or unethically. But what would you have done in the middle of a war? And was the ends justified the means? The, these, the small chapter I have that a lot of people ask me about, the Me Too chapter, where they have the uh, lunch with the misogynist guy who's kind of ogling Megan. Um, I put that scene in not for him, but for the reaction of Jocelyn and Megan later, when you see how different they, these people that, that Megan thought when she first met Jocelyn, that they were just like simpatico. I mean, this is my role model that we feel exactly the same about everything, unlike my mother. And over time, 
particularly in that scene, you're seeing that, oh, no, we don't feel the same about a lot of things because Jocelyn is very much ends justify the means. And if he can help you with your career, do what you need to do uh, to get ahead. And Megan is like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I love that. And I think I can take like two things out of that. The first one is that action is personality in terms of the side characters. What Jocelyn's actions did was show her true, revealed her true nature. And that is a great technique for other writers to take away. And the other one, um, oh God, what was the other one? I I keep doing this. It's because I'm so senior. Like I like get the points and then if I don't get them out I forget exactly what I was gonna say (laughs) what was the other one we were talking about backstory um oh yeah so and and um I really like that trick of having side characters or or even the protagonist have an opinion about a character another character and using that opinion to uh impact the contrast between yeah, to show the, contra- the contrast, but also to influence the reader, right? Because yes. we, we're getting one opinion from um, Megan. And then when you start to get these opinions from other characters, what it does is it puts doubt in the reader's mind without it going into the protagonist's mind. And that lets the reader into a secret, which, which I really like. I like that technique. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask about real world stories. It, it felt so real and so based in like reality it was a little bit scandal like the Shonda Rhimes scandal it was a little bit West Wing it was a little bit like it just felt very real to me it was a very real setting um and I I loved that and I wondered like you know maybe as a journalist like does this maybe this comes in for you but how do you use real world stories as inspiration and how do you of course because you have to fictionalize them and so sort of how do you do what is that process of using them as inspiration and fictionalizing them I don't think I planned it out that way. <laughs> You're giving me too much credit. Like I just planned <laughs> and it all dovetailed to the other. Um, I think I just started writing and thought, well, that would be interesting. Um, I did always have the Devil Wears Prada character in mind for Jocelyn. That was really probably the inspiration for her. Um, and and also, I th- you know, particularly in that movie, but also in the book, I think you do feel for her at the same time you really wind up thinking she's a terrible person, but not necessarily. I mean, there are some things that she's very good at her job and Jocelyn is very good at her job. And so I don't know that I'm answering the question. I don't know that I have an answer. I, I don't think I particularly I was interested in writing a real care real characters uh, I have found lately a lot of what I'm reading I stop reading at about page 100 because these just don't seem like real people to me mm-hmm. uh, they seem like they're acting in odd strange ways that I know nobody that acts like that and so they're kind of caricatures and I I don't enjoy reading about that. And that's, that's just me. My book isn't for everybody. Some people like that, that kind of um, writing. But for me, I'd much rather read about people that I can see myself in that situation and what I, I'm questioning, what, what would I have done in that? 
Well, and I think that's an interesting segue because um, about seeing yourself in the characters, you have some quite whopping generational age gaps. So you've sort of got boomers. What I am assuming is either like a crossover of a, I'm assuming Gen X, Gen X boomer. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got millennial in there. Um, And that is, that's quite a breadth of different mindsets, different culture, different upbringing. And I wondered if you had any advice um, to write who want to create characters who aren't necessarily in their own generation. Um, how do you how did you get into their mindset and their voice in particular? I got real old. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm the wise old seer and I can see everything. Um, I think for the millennial, one, I have a stepdaughter that is 24, 25. So okay. I did ask her some things along the way. It was usually more like... If you wanted to say somebody was really cool, what would you say? You wouldn't say <laughs> cool. What would you say? <laughs> um, but also, uh, you know, again, the psychology, there's a scene in which Jocelyn is expressing this directly to Megan, who is who and, and Jocelyn is saying, you know, at your age, you're all about want. You you want your own apartment. You want a new job. You want a successful career. You want um you know to have the latest fashion whatever it is it's want 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 and at my age it's all about fear it's like i'm afraid i'm going to to uh, lose my best friend i'm afraid i'm going to have medical issues i'm afraid in her case i'm afraid my reputation is going to be wiped out by this twitter troll um i'm afraid i'm going to lose my mind if, you know there is a big fear about alzheimer's out there and so that that two generations is very much taken from the fact that I have talked to people at Jocelyn's age and I at one time was Megan's age and also have a stepdaughter to talk to and and observe, not necessarily she tells me that, but I can observe what she's doing. And um, she is much more brave and adventurous than I was. Um, she is getting ready to, I don't know if this means anything to you, but there was a, a movie last year, Nomadland, about a woman that travels around the country in a trailer and people that do that. She's getting ready to do that with her husband. They're retrofitting a bus and they're going to quit their jobs and uh, drive around the United States and stop when they need to and get jobs and when they run out of money and then move on to somewhere else. And I would never have done that at 24. <laughs> so more power to her. But so I was trying to get into the mindset of that kind of person that really is sees no reason not to take risks. Mm. The risks don't seem like risks to them. Mm, I love that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, because I mean, I swear because I write young adult, you know, I'm mid 30s now, so I'm not really a young adult anymore but I still feel like a young adult so I think Mm. that helps me but I and I and I just wrote a short story um about a middle-aged ex-celebrity with a sort of coke habit habit and a whore habit and other not so great habits um and and so that was like a really interesting test for me to write in a completely different gender and to write in. Oh, it was a different gender too. It was a different gender and it was a different age to me and a different kind of lifestyle. But I mean, it was only a short story, but it was so much fun to try. Um, And so, yeah. And you know what really is the case? The, the, 
the the feelings that we have and the desires we have as a person, I'm not sure that ever changes over time. It's right. just we have different experiences because of the age we lived through, you know, the, the, color, the milieu the we lived through, the surroundings we lived through. But things like hate and love and jealousy and ambition, I mean, that is something that people have been experiencing as long as there have been people. Yeah. And and isn't it funny that this loops back to backstory? Because it's all about the backstory, because that will change their perception. It will color their perception. It will create their tinted spectacles, so to speak. Right. Um, and yeah, oh, this is. And I, and I say that, you know, I admire my stepdaughter for how she's kind of risk adverse. But but earlier in the broadcast, I, I told you about when I was 26, I just quit being a psychologist and started this art store. Well, that was kind of gutsy, I guess. You know, I didn't know anything about doing this. Um, and I think I can remember my husband and I, we were both psychologists. And he said, well, if we go bankrupt, then we'll go get some psychology jobs. You know, we've got a degree. We'll, we're not going to starve. And so maybe I was always... I was gutsy too at that yeah. age. <laughs> okay, so there's a mystery thread that runs through the whole book and we sort of um, like follow clues as to who's telling the truth and who's lying and what the real the real story is behind the characters. Um, and I wondered what advice you would give to writers who want to sort of create these sprawling, uh, I, I, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not, is it a mystery? It's not really mystery because it's women's fiction. It's not a mystery book, but it is kind of a, I can't think of a better word than to use um, this kind of uh, unraveling. Well, she, she's an investigative reporter. So she's doing an investigation of this, this rumor. Yes. Yeah. And I wondered because it really it has it unravels at a really brilliant pace. It's not so fast. It's not so slow. And there's lots of um, like hooks that kept us going through it. So I just wondered if you could talk through that and sort of how you got that pace and that unraveling of the mystery. And, and there's also a character that comes in. Two thirds of the way, I don't know when, when they go down to St. Louis, the character that they find there, that character I think is also a fascinating character, and um, that one just kind of came to me as I was writing. I was just kind of, what would they find there? What are they going to find there? And what would be interesting? And what would be not what you're expecting? And um, so. It's very much the case in, in the mystery of the red herring and the clues and that, that you write it and then you go back and seed the book. So you say, oh, you know, I've written it and I've got to give some clues along the way that this is happening. Um, so you see um, there are several different things that are mysteries, um, one involving Helen, and we see some things early on that Megan experiences and doesn't seem quite to fit but we so, so that was something I added when I saw where it was going at the end I went back and added that thing to give you some foreshadowing I guess you'd say of of what is going to be coming so when when it does come you're not like well pff, you didn't tell me anything about that that's no fair uh, you go oh yeah I 
Yeah, I knew something was going on. I just hadn't figured it out yet. But I also, when I wrote the book and I initially went out trying to get agents, I had the bad guy win because I couldn't figure out any other way to do it. I came up with this very interesting twist that is that is when they're on the talk show. And I love that twist. And I thought, oh, it, it fits perfectly. All all the all the things slot into place. I love this. Okay, this is how I'm going to end it. And and it ends, you know, with the good guy doesn't win. And I went out there and, and you know, everybody said, well, you're going to have to change that ending. And I was like, but I can't figure out how to change it. I've tried to change it. And they said, well, that's not my job. That's your job. <laughs> when you figured it out, come back. <laughs> so I I finally figured out a way to do it. But it was... I was taking the easy way out initially and I was like, well, how come how come the bad guys never get to win? Maybe maybe they are going to win in mine just because I think it was easier and I couldn't figure it out. So um, I I read women's fiction, but I also read a lot of psychological suspense. And I'm a big ah. fan of a lot of uh, uh, women writers in your neck of the woods. Uh, Claire McIntosh is, is my very favorite one, uh, but uh, there are others. Um, and they always seem to live in London. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I should have known. <laughs> um, so I, I'm used to reading stuff that is like that. So maybe I'm, uh, and I, and I do think I naturally tend toward not a cliffhanger at the end of the chapter, but something that keeps you going. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is giving yourself permission to foreshadow later in editing, um, because quite often I'm, I always I put so much pressure on myself to get it right the first time. Oh, no, um, you never get it right the first time. Yeah, <laughs> try telling my brain that. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, I still do editing afterwards, but like I try to... I mean, I don't help myself because I don't write linearly. So I oh. write, it's like a puzzle piece to me. I, I, oh. that, yeah, I write in scenes. So I, yeah. I will never not write a full scene, but um, I don't write the scenes in order and then I piece the story together. So for me, like it is a giant clusterfuck, basically. Well, I don't think that's to... a bit, I, I think that that really has some, um, pluses to it because uh there's a a favorite quote that says you know no excitement in the writer no excitement in the reader mm -hmm. and if you're right if you're reading if you're writing a chapter that you're not excited to write just because it's the next one well go find something that you know is going to be in the book that you're excited to write and then you know you've got that piece and you've got this piece and then all you have to do is what connects the two of them but i'm a big fan of of writing to scenes too maybe not necessarily in order Mm. Okay. Um, I wondered, no. Okay. I think, I think I'm just going to ask my, my ultimate question. This is the rebel author podcast. Can you tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? Well, I thought of two things. One is, is a very simple kind of thing, but it, it illustrates how young I was when I was a rebel uh, because I think it occurred in eighth grade and um, I was um, a real good student. I, I'm, I'll just say it. I'm smart. I'm, I'm smart. So I was smart in a lot of things. And in eighth grade, we took a, uh, a test to see who's smart in math and we're going to put them in advanced math in ninth grade. 
And I didn't like math. I liked literature and reading and pretty much everything except math. Um, and I just stood up to my parents. You know, I carried the little permission form home. And they said, oh, well, they're going to want to put you in advanced math. And I said, I don't want to go in advanced math. I don't like math. And they said, well, yes, but it's a privilege. You know, it's a, you know, something special to do this. And I said, yeah, if I do that, they're going to make me into a math major. And I don't want to do that. And so I guess, you know, my parents, too their credit did listen to me and I did not take that advanced math class. And I don't think I was the, I think I was the only student that ever said no to what was supposedly a very big deal to get to take that. But my more funny story is that when I was at Northwestern, I decided I wanted to transfer to the University of Oklahoma because I fell in love with somebody who went to school there. And I went back to Northwestern in the fall semester and fall, I took one semester and then I started this. They were on a trimester. So I started the second semester and I was two weeks into it. And I decided that I wanted to do this on a Sunday afternoon. And I called my father and said, I want to drop out of Northwestern and go to OU. And he said, well, OK, it, you know, we'll talk about it in June. I said, no, I mean tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, well, I just paid your tuition. And I said, well, what if I can get that back? And he said, he knows me by now because now I'm 20 and he, he's used to me doing this thing. Um, so he says, well, if you can get your money back. So I did on Monday. And on Tuesday morning, I booked a flight out of O'Hare. And I got up at like 4.30 in the morning to go out of the dorm and the dorm was locked. I couldn't get out of the dorm. I was in, in a, a dorm at Northwestern and the front door was locked and there was nobody there. It was like we were locked in. Who knew that they were locking us in every night? So I went up to the third floor, which is where I lived, and went out the fire escape. And then, of course, the door closed behind me. And then I thought, oh, well, now it's, it's this or nothing. And I grew up in Oklahoma. I had never seen a fire escape. The only fire escapes I'd seen were on cop shows and they were always down to the ground. They weren't folded up. I didn't, and I'm not mechanical. I don't quite understand how mechanical things work. So the, the, the uh, uh, fire escape was folded up and I looked down three stories and thought, oh, I, I don't think, how am I going to get down there? And so I threw my <laughs> threw my suitcase down. I thought, well, I'm going to throw my suitcase down in my purse so I, I don't have any of that. And I literally started walking out. I thought, here's my thinking. I'm going to walk out on my hands and knees and then I'm going to hang from my arms, which will be, you know, I'm five, six. So that'll be that much more. I won't have to drop. And then I can probably drop an, a floor and a half and not hurt myself too badly. And of course, when I started going on my hands and knees, the thing started unfolding. And so now I'm climbing, I'm practically tumbling down the fire escape. And then I get to the end and I kind of tumble onto the ground. And I look around and think, I hope nobody saw that. <laughs> and I didn't see anybody. So I just grabbed my suitcase and my purse and ran to the L and caught the train to O'Hare and, and left. And did you get into the new university? I did. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Amazing. And, and, and I didn't tell my boyfriend. I just I just went home to Tulsa and had my mother call him and he walked in the door and I was there and I said, I really hope this is going to be good news. I've transferred. I was thinking, what if he 
didn't really mean that about <laughs> wanting to be with me, but it turned out to be okay. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and anything else you would like to add? Well, I just have the one book. It's for sale starting March 8th, um, Truth and Other Lies. It's on sale online retailers, probably not local bookstores in England, but local bookstores in the United States. My website is Maggie Smith Writer. W-R-I-T-E-R.com. And my major social media where I hang out is Instagram. And I'm Maggie Smith writes W-R-I-T-E-S there. Amazing. Thank you so much. And thank uh, you for having me on. I oh, hope, you're most welcome. I hope I gave you some tips that will solve your problems. Yeah, I am very like the the backstory. Um, I am going to be thinking about that for some time to come. And also the layers of the layers um, of the feeling. What else are they feeling? Yeah. What else are they feeling? That I think has solved a few issues. And as soon as you said it, I knew I shot straight to that funeral scene. I was like, fuck, I knew there was something wrong. Like, and that's what's wrong. So yeah. Um, so thank you so much for your time and of course thank you to all of the show's listeners and the show's patrons if you would like to get early access to all of the episodes as well as a plethora of bonus goodies then you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black I'm Sasha Black you were listening to Maggie Smith and this was the Rebel Author Podcast next week I have a special episode where I'm going to be talking to Mark Leslie Lefebvre and Helen Glynn Jones. And we are going to be talking all about our experience of collaborating on anthologies and how to write, market, organise and publish an anthology. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.